please, people of God, turn in your Bibles in the first place to Lord's, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, if you're using the Adoration Bibles, that can be found on page 833. We want to read a passage from Jeremiah 29 as well as a passage from Romans chapter 8 in connection with Lord's Day 10, and the last lesson that you and I need to learn from the doctrine of God's providence, namely, that we can be confident for the future. In light of God's providence, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from His love. And so, as I read these two passages from Jeremiah 29 and Romans 8, I'd like for us to keep this third lesson in view, confidence for the future. Jeremiah 29 at verse 1, this is God's holy word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives and have sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And now especially these verses. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you with my promise and bring you back to, my, to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's turn to the second place to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, page 1201, 1201 in the Adoration Bibles. And we'll read verses 18 to 30. Romans 8, verse 18, this too, God's holy word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. There ends the reading of God's holy word. May bless it to our hearts this afternoon. Let's turn to the last place, Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That can be found on page 211 in the Forms and Prayers books. 211 in the Forms and Prayers books. Or it can be found on page 876 in the back of the songbooks. 876 in the back of the songbooks. And as is our custom, we'll read these two questions and answers responsively. First of all, question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. This the Church of Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the last number of weeks we've been considering how the Father cares for His children through the lens of the doctrine of His providence. And what we've learned thus far can really be boiled down to this. The doctrine of God's providence drives us to trust God. 
This, you'll recall, was the point that was driven home in Lord's Day 9. In light of God's eternal counsel and providence, the believer says, I trust God. I trust God so much, and I do not doubt that He will provide whatever I need for body and soul. I trust God so much, and I do not doubt that He will even turn to my good whatever adversity He sends upon me in this sad world. I trust that He is able to do this because He is Almighty God. I trust that He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. And so we've seen how we can trust God in adversity. We've seen how God often uses the adversities of this life to make us fit for the joys of the life to come. And we've seen how we should trust God in prosperity as well. We've considered how God is the one who has given us everything that we have and how we need to remember that lest arrogance or pride should begin to to fill our hearts, lest we should be given over to a false sense of of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. But in each of these two lessons, we've primarily been looking back. We've been looking back on our lives. And in Psalm 119, for example, we learn to, to look back and say, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And so it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. In Deuteronomy 8, we learn to to look back on on all of God's kind providences toward us. And there we learn to keep a a mental record in our minds of of all the times that God has blessed us. You recall how how Moses took the people of Israel on a a mental journey from the waters of the Red Sea all the way to the border of the promised land. And how Moses, as he retraced their steps, do you see how God was faithful here? How God parted the waters of the Red Sea, how God gave you manna from heaven, how God has has brought you now to this place, to the border of the promised land. And as Moses did that, the Spirit invited us to perform a similar exercise, to, to look back on our lives and to retrace our steps, to see all the ways in which God has been faithful to us, how all we have needed, God's hand has provided In the first two lessons of God's providence, we've primarily been looking back. But in the third lesson of God's providence, we learn something about what it is to look forward. The third lesson of God's providence invites us to to ask the question, but, but what about the future? The future, of course, is unknown to us. None of us here knows what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow could potentially be the very best day of your life. It could also be the worst day of your life. Tomorrow could even be the very last day of your life. Tomorrow could very well be the day when the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Tomorrow could finally be the day when we shall behold the Savior face to face. But tomorrow could also be another day of waiting and and suffering in this world, groaning under the curse, as the Apostle Paul describes, groaning as as a woman in child labor. But we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we take comfort this afternoon in knowing that that what is unknown to us is, is known to God. God knows what tomorrow will bring. God knows what the next year will bring. God knows the day and the hour of Christ's return, and God knows everything 
that will happen from now until then. And this, boys and girls, was the believing remnant's comfort so long ago in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. In the midst of their exile, as they, as they found themselves living under the cruel oppression of King Nebuchadnezzar, in that context, they receive a letter from the Lord himself. Can you imagine that, boys and girls? Can you imagine receiving a letter from God? The letter, of course, was, was written by the pen of the prophet Jeremiah, but, but as Jeremiah wrote that letter, the apostle Peter says he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is, is breathed out by God. And so, when the exiles in Babylon received this letter, the, the handwriting was Jeremiah's, but the message was the Lord's. The, the message was, was warm with, with the Lord's breath, just like the rest of the Bible. When they received this letter, they did not know what the next day would bring, but God did. God knew exactly what the next day would bring, and God knew what every day would bring until the time of the restoration. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In the midst of their present affliction, Judah had a future hope. For the future, they could have good confidence that, that their lives were so completely in the Father's hands that nothing could separate them from His love. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not anybody else. Although King Nebuchadnezzar had been able to take them out of the promised land, although Nebuchadnezzar had been able to, to remove them from the temple of God, he could not take them away from the God of the temple. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. And when it comes to God's children, the Lord Jesus says that the Father who is greater than all has us in his hand and that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And so as we read on in the rest of the New, New Testament, we soon discover that, that Judah's confidence for the future way back then in Babylon is as much our confidence today. We too can say with the Apostle Paul that, that the sufferings of this life are not worth being compared to the glories of the life to come. Indeed, in this hope, we can say we are saved. For although we may not know what tomorrow will bring, we do know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And because we know this to be so, we can rest in God's plans. This is the first thing that the prophet Jeremiah was seeking to press home for his exiled readers. Here we see that God really does work all things together for good, but, but He does so in His timing. As the people of Israel found themselves living in captivity, they may have found themselves wondering, what, what on earth is God up to? Has God turned His back on us? Has God forgotten us? We thought we were the, the people of the Lord, the, the prized possession of the Lord. So what gives? Has, has God failed us? Has God let us down? Where is God in, in all of this? They must have wondered. 
And aren't those the sort of questions that we ask as well? In the midst of our own suffering, we too often wonder, what is God up to? What, what is God doing in my life? Why won't God answer my prayer? Why is God allowing me to suffer in this way? Why am I still struggling with the same old sins? Why am I still stuck in the same old boring job? What, if anything at all, is, is God doing in my life? Well, this letter in Jeremiah 29 was written to answer these sorts of questions. Jeremiah writes to God's people to make the matter plain to them. He writes to them to to set things straight, for there were certain false prophets who were leading them astray. We read of that in verses 8 and 9 about these certain false prophets who, who were deceiving them. And God says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream. You read in chapter 28, for example, of the false prophet Hananiah, who was, who was saying to the people of Israel, exile is not going to be 70 years, it's just going to be two years. Well, that, of course, is what they all wanted to hear, but that's not what they needed to hear. But now Jeremiah comes along to remind them as the true prophet of the Lord, no, it won't just be two short years, it's going to be for 70 years. For thus says, Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. And this is good news for the people of Israel. Boys and girls, why was this good news for the people of Israel? To hear that for 70 years they're going to be in Babylon, then God will fulfill His promise for them. It was good news because the Lord knew what He was doing. The Lord knows what He's doing. And His plans are good and wise. Sanctification, you see, is often a, a slow process. Boys and girls, that's why mom and dad don't just discipline you when you're a toddler, but they, they discipline you as long as you're living under their roof. Because sanctification is a slow process. And God's desire in the exile is to sanctify His people, to to wake His people up after years of, of tuning God out, after years of neglecting God. God's desire is to sanctify them, to make them holy. His desire is to bring them to completeness. And 70, we know, is a number of, of completeness. And that's God's desire here, to, to make His people complete. As we heard a few weeks ago in, in James 1 verse 4, God is going to see to it that their learned patience will have its full effect, that they may be complete, lacking in nothing. Babylon, you see, was but an instrument in the hand of the Lord. Isn't this what we see in verses 2 and 4? In verse 2, we read about how Nebuchadnezzar had taken these survivors into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. But then in verse 4, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar was simply an instrument in the hand of the Lord. For there the Lord says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon was but an instrument in the hand of the Lord, and the purpose of this instrument was to make Judah holy. The purpose of this instrument was to restore Judah to repentance and faith. Babylon 
was the hammer. Nebuchadnezzar was the chisel. But both were held in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord used those things to chip away at, at Judah's sin. So that he might have a beautiful masterpiece when it was all said and done. God's design was not to harm them, but to give them a future and a hope. That's what we discover in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, not to harm you, but to give you a future and a hope. With these words, Jeremiah is is answering the question that God's people had asked in Psalm 137. In Psalm 137, the exiles sat down and wept. By the rivers of Babylon, they sat down and wept when they remembered Zion because there the captors, the Babylonians, mocked them and they derided them saying, sing for us one of those songs of Zion. Why don't you sing for us one of those songs about your God supposedly being in control? Go ahead and sing Psalm 99, the Lord God reigns in majesty. Perhaps they said, sing one of those songs about the line of David, people of Judah. Yeah, sing something like Psalm 89, behold God's truth and grace displayed, for he has faithful covenant made, and he has sworn that David's son shall ever sit upon the throne. Because where's David's son now, Judah? He's with us. We've got King Jeconiah. Go on, they'd say, sing for us one of those songs one of those foolhardy songs of Zion, now that you're under the captivity of great and mighty Nebuchadnezzar. And in the midst of that mockery, in the midst of their suffering, God's people asked the question in Psalm 137, verse 4, how? How shall we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? Well, here in his letter to the exiles, Jeremiah is really saying to them and he's saying to us, here's how. Here's how you can sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land. Here's how you can sing the songs of the Lord in a world like this world. Contrary to what your captors are insinuating, the Lord is on the throne. And the Lord knows the plans that he has for you plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's how they could sing the songs of Zion and Babylon. When the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, the word translated as plans might otherwise be translated as thoughts or, or purposes. And, in, and it's a word that emphasizes the, the certainty of God's purposes. It's a word that highlights the reality that, that God really is the one who's behind the steering wheel. Not Nebuchadnezzar, God. God is the one behind the steering wheel. And the point is simply to say that God knows what he's doing. Beloved, God knows what he's doing in your life. God knows what he's doing in my life. God knows what he's doing in the world. And we need to rest in that. We need to trust that. As one pastor has suggested, the problem that we often have as Christians is, is not so much that we doubt God's greatness or God's goodness. We know that God is great. We know, we've experienced that God is good. 
But our problem as Christians more often lines up with Job's problem. Not that we doubt God's goodness or His greatness, but we often doubt God's wisdom, don't we? How often don't we have the audacity to think that we know better? We have the audacity to wonder if God really knows what He's doing. And we think we know ourselves so well, and so we think in pride, well, well, who knows what I need better than I do? But the Bible reminds us that God knows better, that Father knows best. And because we know Him as our Father for the sake of Christ His Son, as Lord's Day 9 says, we can rest in the plans that He has for us, trusting that He really will provide whatever we need for body and soul, and trusting that He certainly will turn to our good, whatever adversity He sends upon us in this sad world. People of God, we need to lean upon the Lord's infinite wisdom, even when we don't see the full picture of what the Lord is doing and how exactly the Lord is is working in our lives, particularly in the midst of suffering and sorrow. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense we sing, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. God moves in mysterious ways. He is infinitely wise and good. God has chosen to use the means of suffering to prepare us for the future. Even Jesus suffered. Although He was a son, says the author of Hebrews, He learned obedience through what He suffered. As Charles Spurgeon once said, God has one son without sin, but He has no sons without suffering. Didn't Jesus say, no servant is greater than his master? Hasn't Peter said, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And that word, follow in his steps, is a word that always means pattern or, or stamp or imprint. As Paul says in Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided that we suffer with him and or that we may also be glorified with him. God knows the plans He has for us. As Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's God's plan for you. But that plan involves Philippians 1 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in His name, but suffer for His sake. And this is why Paul could say, as he surveyed the sufferings of this present time, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glories of the life to come. For we know, we know our suffering, we know our afflictions, but we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Beloved, the Spirit of Christ bids us to rest in God's plans, and He assures us that we can have good confidence for the future as we are reoriented by God's promises. The promises of God are what move us from 
from fear to faith. The promises of God are what move us from spiritual laziness and lethargy to renewed strength and zeal. That was meant to be the effect of these promises in Jeremiah 29, that as God's word now came to this neglecting people who had been neglecting God and neglecting his word for so many years, God says, be reoriented by these promises. God's promises reorient us, not to, to look around at the world around us for comfort, but, but to look up to the God of the promises. God's promises, you could say, are the believer's compass. They, they keep the believer on the straight and narrow until she finally arrives at her heavenly home. In the midst of our suffering and sorrows, in the midst of our ongoing struggles with sin and spiritual laziness and lethargy, in the midst of all the, the consequences that, that sin and lethargy have brought into our lives, what does the Lord say in verse 12? And you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Not only does God work according to his timetable, bidding us to rest in his plans, but he also works by his ordained means, bidding us to be reoriented by the promises. God is sovereign. We believe that. We confess that. We know that. But his sovereignty is worked out through ordained means, means like the means of verses 12 to 14, the means of prayer, the means of seeking him with all our heart. Judah is going to be in Babylon for 70 years. They're going to be far away from the temple of God. But that doesn't mean they need to be far from the God of the temple. Our ESV Bibles use the word then at the start of verse 12, which almost implies that, that they have to wait for 70 years before they act upon the promises of verses 12 to 14. But, but in the Hebrew, it's just the word and, which more clearly expresses the reality that these promises for the future were to reorient them in the present, in their present situation. They were not to look around at Babylon and say, what a mess for him. What are we supposed to do? They were to look up to God and act upon the promises in the here and now. It's true that Judah found herself in captivity on account of her sin, and that captivity is a, a testament to the reality that there are consequences for our sin, but God speaks to them nevertheless, even as He speaks to us this afternoon. If you've been living in sin, if you've been neglecting the Lord, if you've been neglecting His Word, neglecting prayer, neglecting your baptism, neglecting the preaching, Perhaps you can relate to what Judah was going through. Perhaps you feel like you're in a captivity of sorts, like God is far away. The fifth head of doctrine and the canons of Dort remind us that God sometimes makes us feel that way. God makes us feel like we've lost the sense of his favor when we've been living in rebellion against him, when we've been neglecting him. He does that so that we might come back to him and run to him and, and confess our sin to him. And confess our neglect to him. And to the rebels that we are, to sinners, to neglecters, what does God do? 
What is God saying? To sinners and neglecters, God says, and you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Isn't that amazing? We know we know that God only hears us for the sake of Christ, His Son, but God really does hear us. We can say with the psalmist in Psalm 116, I love the Lord, the fount of life and grace, for He heard my voice, my cry and supplication. He inclines His ear to give strength and consolation. And He sincerely, genuinely, seriously calls you and me to come to Him, to seek Him. And He does so with the promise that when we seek Him, we will find Him when we seek Him with all our heart. Perhaps we say, but pastor, I haven't sought Him in so long. My love for Him has grown so cold. How, how can I seek Him now? We, of course, recognize that none of us can seek Him unless He first moves our souls to seek Him. We sing that, I sought the Lord, and afterward He knew He moved my soul to to seek Him, seeking me. But brothers and sisters, this is what God is doing right now in the preaching of the Word. God is graciously seeking you right here, right now. And he's saying to you, not I, but God says, you'll seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. You need only place your trust in him and make use of the means that he's ordained for you. God has given you the means of prayer. God has given you the means of His Word. This is how we we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is how we we make our calling and election sure. God has, has given us means. And if we're neglecting the means, the means of grace, well, then we can't expect to grow in grace. When you seek me, you'll find me. When you seek me, with all your heart. We at times struggle to believe that. Sometimes we look at our lives and we don't see the growth and grace that we desire. But perhaps the truth is that we haven't even tried. Perhaps the reality is that in our sin we've neglected God's means of grace and have given up on seeking Him and communing with Him with all our heart. But none of us can go home tonight saying, I'm not going to seek him unless God first takes the initiative and reveals himself to me in some special or extraordinary way. Because again, that's what God is doing right now. God is revealing himself to you. God is revealing what lives in the innermost chambers of his heart, a sincere desire, a warm summons, an invitation to come, and you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. As the the prophet Isaiah puts it, 
God speaks to a wayward people, a sinful people, neglecting people. He speaks to them sincerely and seriously. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his unrighteous thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that God may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon This was God's personal, passionate plea to Judah. And this is God's personal, passionate plea to us this afternoon. We sometimes cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 85, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We sometimes ask the same question of the exiles, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Here in Jeremiah 29, God is telling us the answer. When you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with all your heart. Chapter 29 is somewhat of a a turning point in Jeremiah's prophecy. The promises of of Jeremiah 29 are followed up by, by even more promises in the chapters to come. Promises that should serve to reorient us and renew us and refresh us. In chapter 30, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. In chapter 31, we come to that that climactic promise, and I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. When I'll write my law upon their hearts and, and remember their sins no more. In chapter 33, the Lord says, I will cleanse them from all their guilt and all their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. We've seen that again, pictured in baptism, what God does. And what all these promises are really leading up to and pointing us forward to is is the great restoration to come. When God's when in God's good providence will not just be given a relatively small plot of land in the Middle East, but will be given the whole earth and paradise regained. As Psalm 126 says, those who sow in tears, they shall reap with shouts of joy. As Romans 8.30 says, those whom God has predestined, he's also called. Those whom he's called, he's also justified. And those whom he's justified, he's also glorified. For we know, verse 23 of Romans 8, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we too groan inwardly and we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we are saved. In this hope we are saved. Hope. Hope we know is just faith on tiptoes, right? Hope looks over all the sins and sorrows and sufferings of this life and it sees by faith what's to come in the life to come. God's promise in Jeremiah 29 verse 14, of course, had its immediate fulfillment in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when God's people returned and they rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls surrounding Jerusalem. These words speak to us yet today as they point us forward to the greater day of 
of restoration to come, when I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. We've tasted that promise already in part in virtue of our justification that we know that Christ was was exiled at the cross so that we might have fellowship restored and regained. We also know that for the time being, our fellowship, though restored, is often hindered by ongoing sin. But a day is coming when that will no longer be the case. When our fellowship will be fully restored, when God will, will take us back from the exile that was life outside the garden and bring us back into paradise regained. That's what Peter says at the end of his letter to those suffering believers in 1 Peter after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so we can be patient in adversity. And we can be thankful in prosperity. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from His love. Beloved, God knows the plans that He has for us, plans to give us a future and a hope. And this afternoon, He bids us to live in light of those promises, to live by faith, to live in, in the assurance of things hoped for, and to live according to the conviction of things we don't yet see. The believing remnant in Babylon had to live in the same way. During their 70 years of captivity, they had to trust the promises of God. They had to, to live by faith in God as they lived in the city of Babylon, as they built houses and planted gardens and, and had children, as they prayed for the welfare of the city. They had to do all those things by faith, not seeing immediately how it could be that God would, would bless them in Babylon. They needed to rest in the plans of God. They needed to be reoriented by the promises of God, and they needed to trust that they certainly would be restored in the providence of God. And this congregation is what we too need to do if we are to look forward into the future unafraid and confident. He who testifies to all these things says, surely I am coming soon. And so we pray even so, come, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have good confidence for the future. We thank you, Lord, that you know the plans that you have for us, not to harm us, but to give us a future and a hope. And we stand in awe that you summon us, the sinners and neglectors that we are, that you summon us again and again and again to seek you. And that you do so with this promise that if we seek you, we will find you when we seek you with all our heart. Lord, we pray that you would indeed move us to seek you even as you are seeking us. Father, we pray that we would be reoriented by your promises, that we would take hold of them, that we would make every use of the means of grace you've given us 
to growing grace in this world of thorns and thistles where we see the curse all around us. We can so easily give in to despair. And so, Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to avail ourselves of your ordained means, the means of prayer, the means of the word, the means of the sacraments, even as we have a view to coming to the table next Sunday. Lord, we pray for the day of restoration, when in your providence, history shall reach its final end, when the Lord Christ shall return upon the clouds, and we shall meet Him in the air. What a glorious day that will be. Lord, we pray that that day would be soon, that You would end our sorrows and sufferings tomorrow or tonight, that Jesus Christ would come, that we might behold Him face to face in all His glory. This we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.